Hello and welcome to episode number 161 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona, and this episode has been released onto agroinnovations.com slash podcast on Monday, December 22nd, 2014. Merry Christmas to everyone, and I hope you're having a good holiday season. Hope you're staying warm, and I hope you have a great new year. Uh, just to let you know, before I get into this week's interview, there will not be an episode of the podcast next week. I'll be taking a little time off uh, for the holidays and be back uh, probably the following week, but if not, certainly in, in a couple of weeks. As I promised you, we will start to discuss uh, issues related to forestry, and that's going to happen a little sooner than I thought, as we will uh, start that with this week's episode. Before we get into this week's episode, um, I would like to let you know that if you like this podcast and you would like to support the work that I do, you can click on the PayPal Donate button on the right-hand side of the agroinnovations.com website. I encourage you to do so. Now, please enjoy my interview with Marcus Kaufman. Today on the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Marcus Kaufman, and Marcus is with, I believe, the State uh, Forestry Department in the state of Oregon, and he is also quite an expert in biomass energy and the utilization of wood energy uh, for different industrial and other forestry applications. Marcus Kaufman, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So did you want to maybe start just by telling the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Certainly. Well, uh, I work for the Oregon Department of Forestry, which is the state forestry. And my background is in really in community and regional planning. And uh, I've done a number of things around rural communities uh, from economic development to energy efficiency to forest restoration. Um, both Most of my work has been in the Pacific Northwest with some work uh, internationally in the Caribbean and in Mexico. Um, and the Department of Forestry really does you know, three main things. You know, first and foremost, we're the state's wildland fire department. So if a fire happens and people call, you know, it's ODF that responds to wildfire. Um, secondly, we, we regulate and oversee uh, commercial forestry. So we have the Forest Practices Act, which regulates what people can and can't do with their forest land. Uh, and then thirdly, we manage the state's forests, which we have three large state forests that we manage uh, on an intensive sustainable yield basis. And and my position in, as a biomass resource specialist is really aimed at providing and fostering increased value for the byproducts of active management, of forest restoration, uh, and of the wood products sector. Uh, all of this is under the under the belief that if we have value that uh, that helps keep working forests working and continues to so that those forests will provide the benefits to the public to the landowners uh, and to the environment okay so let's unpack some of those things in more detail um, let's start with the fire piece now some people may or may not be aware of some of the situation particularly in the western United States with fire and many of the forest management issues that surround fire. But I wonder if you could give us just kind of the brief 
uh, synopsis of that situation and context uh, from an ecological and, and maybe even from a social perspective? Yeah, it, there's um, there's a lot of moving parts to the fire question, and you know, fire when we have fire on the landscape, there's three factors: weather, topography, and fuels, right? And from a land management perspective, the only issue that we can effectively address is the fuel, and you know, that's about you know where those trees are, where the brush is, and how quickly a fire will, will burn through that. Um, so the, the fire, the fire question, you know, really f- for us, you know, we, the, the current pattern, the way that we operate and the way that fire management o- operates across the country is that most of our efforts are focused on fire suppression. So that's about putting the fire out once it starts. And we have a very effective organization, as do our federal partners and other state agencies, to put fires out. Uh, But what we've realized over the last decade or so, that fires are growing hotter, uh, they're becoming larger, and they're more destructive. And part of that is, frankly, part of that is climate change, uh, just drought conditions. Part of that is also uh, the way communities have grown up next to the forest. So you know, we now talk about the wildland-urban interface, which is this kind of mix of residences right up into the forest land, which makes fighting a fire very difficult and very costly. Um, and then we also have the condition of federal forests, which aren't managed as intensively uh, as private industrial forests or family forests, and you know, we oftentimes have situations where we have large fires that burn in federal forests in places where they're relatively innocuous, like wilderness areas where that's a perfect place for a fire to play its natural role, or roadless areas. Uh, the problem is is that we get smoke impacts into communities, and those fires, of course, can spread onto other lands. Um, so our efforts are really... Um, to kind of get ahead of the problem is to address the land, the lands themselves and reduce the fuels. And by that, we mean um, get rid of the small brush and the trees and the, and the little shrubs that can carry a fire and get it up into the crowns of the trees. So if the trees are widely separated and a fire comes through, the fire will, as we say, drop to the ground where the flame lengths are shorter and we can have a, be- a better chance of putting it out. So really, you know, what we're trying to do is control the one variable that we can deal with, which is the fuel itself, because we can't deal with the weather and we can't deal with the topography. Um, and that is, you know, what needs to come out is all this small material. That's the biomass. It's small, br- small logs, small trees, brush, and there's really no market for that. You know, that's kind of the crux of the issue is that we can't make a two by four out of it. So we just simply have to pay to have it removed. And my job and the other folks in the world of biomass energy, you know, we can take that material and turn it into an energy product or electricity or heat or now potentially liquid fuels. You know, so that's really the land management nexus is, you know, if we have markets for this material for the byproducts of fuels reduction, for the byproducts of restoration, uh, 
then we can offset some of those costs and we can stretch scarce dollars farther, treat more lands, and do a better job of, of protecting communities from wildfire. Okay, so I, I do want to get into this biomass energy piece in some detail, um, but there was also some things that you said earlier on in your comments that I think were worth exploring in more detail. Um, you spoke about fire having a natural role in ecosystems and forested ecosystems, and this may be something that's you know poorly understood by people who don't have a background in forest management or forest ecology. Can you unpack some of that a little bit for people? Certainly. Um, a lot of the forests that we deal with in the West are, you know, their primary kind of defining factor is their aridity. These are dry forests that have evolved with fire. And evolved, we mean that there's a, a natural fire cycle that these forests would go through sometimes on low elevation forests from, you know, every seven years a fire would come through you know, up to higher elevation forests where that are moister, more moisture, you know, maybe it's every 50 years or 100 years. But we have, you know, since 100 years ago, 1900s or so, we actively suppress fires. So we have, we have stopped the natural fire cycle. So fires just don't occur like the way that they used to as these forests evolved. Um, so we, we broke that cycle and over the last hundred years we've allowed a tremendous amount of fuel to build up in these forests um, so that if you think about the kind of some of the iconic images of forests on the east side of Oregon you know you think about these large ponderosa pine forests trees that are two to three four feet in diameter that are widely spaced to think think open park-like setting you could drive a model T through it this is the kind of conditions that the settlers and the pioneers found when they came to Oregon. And when we stop, when, when we don't allow fire to have its natural role of cleaning out that underbrush and those small trees, they grow up underneath. And so now we have big old growth trees, but with lots of small trees underneath them, and it gets very thick, uh, you get moisture competition, and it also can, you know, that's the conditions under which a fire will be high, high intensity and destroy the whole stand versus just doing kind of creeping along the ground of the, of the, of the forest. So that's kind of what we mean is that we have all sites of all sorts of ecotypes, whether it's ponderosa pine or sagebrush juniper or, you know, mixed conifer forests that have evolved with fire. But, you know, since we now live next to these forests and we protect them, fire can't play its natural role. Um, and you know, then that means that we have to take an, a hand in that role of managing managing those fuels. Because if we just let the fire do what it wants, um, it leads to a lot of negative consequences. And and there are places where, you know, think about the like the Bob Marshall Wilderness area in the middle of in the middle of Montana. It's okay if that place burns. Or Yellowstone. Those are great examples. Um, but. You, that's a very difficult concept to apply broadly across the landscape uh, because of the presence of, of private land, the impact of smoke, the damage to threatened and endangered species populations, um, and the damage to life and property. You know, we put, we put firefighters in danger every year, and every year we have, unfortunately, we have fatalities on the fire line. 
So it, it's a complicated question, this idea of kind of letting fire play its natural role. Uh, and it's not one that you can as easily, you can't in, easily generalize about it. One of the things that strikes me, oh, you talked about federal lands, is it seems to me that there's a certain degree of bureaucratic inertia in dealing with this problem. And I say that, I mean, you know, if you get on the Forest Service job page, for example, the vast majority of the jobs are surrounded are uh, about fire, whether you're a dispatcher or a operations manager or something of that nature. Um, and uh, we've gotten to the point, I think, where a lot of people are in positions that are dedicated to resources being um, channeled towards fighting fire. So I'm wondering if it's going to be hard to make the changes that are required uh, just because there are, at this point, maybe a lot of vested interests in this firefighting industry. Well, I, I do think that there you can't argue with the fact that, you know, where the money goes. And it's well known that over 50% of the Forest Service's budget goes to pay for fire suppression. Uh, you know, I've worked very closely with the Forest Service over the years of a couple decades, and I know that it's an incredible frustration to the staff and the people that work on those forests and their inability to manage the lands because of the, of, of fire, right? Because of the lack of funds, the things like fire borrowing uh, that, you know, where you'll have a project and it's moving on the way, and then you have a very expensive fire season, they take the money, that was going to go to a land management project and use it to pay for fire suppression. Um, so there is a certain amount of inertia there. Uh, I also think that on the other hand, which is not as well known and not seen is are the efforts on behalf of the, of the federal agencies to really come up with new models and thinking, thinking things differently. Uh, you know, for example, ODF is a lead partner on what we call the cohesive wildfire strategy. And the Cohesive Wildfire Strategy is, is really an all-lands, all-hands effort to build fire-adapted communities, to build resilient landscapes and effective emergency response. And, you know, so what does that look like on the ground? Um, we have a pilot out in northeast Oregon, in the far corner of Oregon, and really there we're working with our federal partners to think about, you know, joint fire training for better suppression responses, but then also, you know, if we're going to put ODF resources towards projects on the ground that would reduce fuels on private landowners, let's do them right across the fence on the federal land as well. So now what we've done is from rather than ODF doing whatever it's going to do and the Wallah Whitman or the Umatilla National Forest doing whatever it's going to do, now we've taken a more coordinated, comprehensive approach and say, we realize that resources are scarce, so let's put them into a place where we can leverage both of our resources will put our cost share dollars to private land, which butts up against federal forest land, and you put your planning dollars and implementation dollars to the same landscape, and we'll get more done, and we'll invest in market development efforts, which will hopefully find a home for the byproducts from those efforts. So those are the kinds of things that are happening at a, at a local and regional level that uh, I think are helping to change the mindset, you know, because you know, that whole idea of the cohesive wildfire strategy came from the Forest Service and from state forestry agencies and the Oregon Department of Forestry is, you know, very happy to step up and try to 
demonstrate what that could look like on the ground. Talk about a little bit the role that insects are playing in uh, the increasing intensity of wildfires. I was just in northern New Mexico this past summer, and uh, the spruce beetle is really taking out a lot of acreage in that part of the country, Um, so much so that you just go on a casual hike and you can just see thousands and thousands of acres of uh, spruce that have been destroyed. Um, what is, what are some of the dynamics that you're seeing with insects and how does that relate back to changes in climates, in climate or, uh, some of the forest suppression activities that you've talked about? Yeah, well, this isn't something that I'm a, a recognized expert on, so I'll, I'll quickly get out of my depth on this, but, uh, I think one of the things that is well known is the spread of these insects due to changes in temperature. You know, so spruce budworm, um, and other insects, which would regularly regularly be kept in check by very low temperatures, you know, down into minus five and such, when those temperatures no, no longer occur, that allows those insects to, um, those populations to thrive and to penetrate into other areas. So there is a, there's a distinct climate change connection with the spread of these insects. Um, and of course, what how it manifests on the landscape is that we, we just we we see large landscapes of die off of and unprecedented unprecedented amounts of dead and dying material, uh, particularly in places like you know Colorado um, and Canada. We've even seen you know we've seen pockets of this in Oregon, and it presents a huge challenge because we're just you know there are no markets for that material really. And our forest products industry isn't set up to deal with large volumes of dead and down material, uh, and of course it creates a huge fire hazard as those as those trees die and they fall over. You know, I've I've been to stands where have jackstraw trees that you know look like pickup sticks that are four or five six feet deep, and you know a fire gets into that and you just you just walk away. You, like, you can't put it out. So. It, it is potentially a very dangerous situation, um, and there are some solutions. You know, some of the um, industry development that has happened up in British Columbia, uh, where they've managed to actually make a pellet product, and you know, a densified fuel product out of out of wood using this um, dead and dying material that has resulted from insects and disease, and you know, they're employing people putting that stuff to use. Uh, we haven't seen that so much uh, in the Western United States, but it's certainly a possibility. Okay, so I think that we've gotten a pretty good overview of some of the ecological dynamics that are driving this. Um, maybe before we move too deeply into what's happening in Oregon and the uh, Western biomass situation, you know, one of the things I've noticed is this contrast between the eastern United States and the western United States in their approach to woody biomass as an energy source. And what I've seen is in the eastern United States, there's not this huge concern uh, with forest health as there is in the west. And so smaller projects are, are okay. They, are, they make a lot of sense. Um, and there's a lot of legacy infrastructure that lends itself nicely to some of these smaller projects. 
Uh, whereas in the Western United States, there are smaller projects going on, uh, but a lot of these smaller projects don't necessarily have the impact on forest health that we would like to see. Um, I wonder if you see that same dichotomy between East and West, and if you have any thoughts or comments on that. Yeah, well, the you know the biggest difference between the Eastern United States and the Western United States in terms of forestry is you know who owns the land base, and you know the Western landscape is predominated by federal land management ownership or federal land management, uh, which you know, constricts what uh, what types of management can occur and also puts a different focus on it. The focus on federal lands is really around forest health and restoration. Uh, the, the eastern forest landscape is largely private, privately held, and that allows them to manage for a much more intensive level. Um, and also another thing is that, you know, some of those eastern forests, particularly in the southeast, they're highly productive. You know, it's, it's warmer, you know, longer growing season. Uh, so those forests grow faster. Uh, you know, here in Oregon, particularly on the west side, we have some highly productive forests as well. But I think primarily that the difference is the ownership is at the, at the core of it and how those land managers uh, can make investments and set up infrastructure to capitalize on markets uh, that is much more difficult to do uh, if you're in a if you're a community surrounded by public land. Okay, so now tell us a little bit about um, what is happening in Oregon uh, with some of the biomass development work that you're doing specifically, and um, some of the opportunities that you see, but also some of the challenges that you're facing. Sure. Um, well, Oregon has a really diverse uh, biomass landscape, and you know we have a robust and very concentrated forest products industry, uh, and we have we have a lot of forests, and we have a lot of forest land, and a lot of communities that are that still very much identify with forestry and that way of life, um, and there's still a lot of certainly a lot of political support for the forest product sector. So we have biomass utilization at all different scales, you know, from the very smallest scale of, um, you know, wood stoves and um, biomass thermal projects, which would be like my old elementary school, Evergreen Elementary in Cave Junction in deep southern Oregon. You know, a couple of years ago, we converted that school from a pellet, from a heating oil boiler to a pellet boiler. And save that school $20,000 a year in their fuel bill. And we also can converted my old high school. Uh, so we have those kinds of commercial and institutional projects at that scale of schools, hospitals, uh, airports, and we're now up to 20 of those projects. And we have, you know, a dozen more in the pipeline. We also have a strong densified fuel manufacturing industry, you know, Pellet manufacturing was one of the first first industries to Oregon was one of the first states to actually create pellet manufacturing, and so we now have eight or nine facilities that are producing densified pellets. You know, mostly selling it into the residential bag market, uh, but you know, other entities that are selling into the bulk market and who are also even looking at exports. 
so that's a that's a vibrant use. Uh, and you know, because we have a forest products industry, we have a number of cogeneration facilities, which is cogeneration is the creation of two products from one fuel. So in this case, it's the creation of electricity and the creation of steam or process heat from wood. And most of those are at, located at lumber mills or plywood plants. Uh, and they use the process heat for their own, either their dry kilns or their veneer kiln, and then either use the electricity on site or sell it onto the grid. Uh, and then the the emerging market that has a lot, you know, a lot of promise, but still a lot of challenges, is the liquid fuels market. Um, you know, since we do have large quantities of feedstock, and that you know, liquid fuels facilities are not small. Um, we there's a there's a company that has announced its intent to to make a 12 million gallon a year uh, wood to liquid fuels project in southeast southeast Oregon in Lake County. And you know that project has yet to be built yet, but it's you know a lot of folks see it as a harbinger of things to come of really tapping into this demand on a national level for renewable next generation you know, cellulosic ethanol, you know a fuel source that gets away from the food versus fuel debate. Um, so there's a number of those projects that are kind of on the drawing board that we all hope that they will get built. Um, there's certainly a lot of challenges with that sector. I, folks who have followed that sector know that there's a number of smoking hulls across the landscape that investors have built that haven't been operationalized. You know, Keyor, one of the big facilities in Mississippi, just announced that they're going bankrupt. So while I'm very optimistic about it, you know, to be clear, those facilities have to prove that they can be operational and they can be profitable. Um, and every one of those sectors um, has its challenges. You know, the cogeneration sector really relies on electrical generation to drive the other half of the business model. And, you know, there is limited demand for renewables here in Oregon uh, because we have competition from other renewables and because we price, the, um, we price renewable energy based on the price of natural gas, which is at a very low point in our history. So that makes the economics of generating renewable energy from biomass very challenging. Um, the biomass thermal space, those are very viable projects, and that market has been going based on its energy savings. However, biomass is more competitive against propane and heating oil fuels versus natural gas. And natural gas is the most prominent fuel across the state, and that is the fuel that is used in all of the large populous communities. So until biomass thermal can compete effectively against natural gas, we won't see the kind of widespread market adoption that we're all looking for. Um, liquid fuels has you know, serious technological risk and capital risk behind it, as well as regulatory hurdles. Uh, you know, one of the regulatory hurdles that's kind of underneath the underneath the surface in the liquid fuels market is that projects that use fiber from federal forests are not eligible for getting a renewable identification number, a RIN, because of a prohibition in federal law. And in Oregon, in our 
federal private landscape, you know, it's a mixed feedstock landscape. It's kind of hard to avoid federal fiber trees from federal land. So that just makes it very difficult. Uh, so there's a number of things that every every market that you look at, there's something that is an obstacle. One of the things in my work in this area that I've noticed um, is there is a lot of talk, as you said, about developing markets for these types of products. And at the same time, uh, it seems like most of the groups that are involved in it, whether they're industry uh, lobby groups or they are uh, nonprofit organizations or they are, you know, state forestry division offices in various Western states um, or even the Forest Service itself, they all seem to get together um, and brainstorm about how to build these markets and really feel like that there's a there there. And yet most of the time seems to either be spent looking for federal dollars to help incentivize the projects or, you know, spending federal dollars that have been allocated to help find ways to build these markets. So it feels a little bit paradoxical to me. Uh, am I missing something or is there is, is this just something that's not going to get off the ground with without government money? Well, it's, it's a good question. And, and I kind of. I think that it does it does speak to you know what is the appropriate role of government in these in these questions, and you know I I'm, I'm kind of a centrist when it comes to these questions. You know I think that there is a a strong role for the public sector, uh, but really it's not. I think there's a point in time where you know sometimes we have to say enough is enough, and we're just not going to get anywhere with that particular market, and. You know, I'm not. I don't know who the final arbitrator is and how we get that decision. You know, I'm. I'm. I'm a big fan of the phrase that President Obama uses of this "all of the above" strategy. Um, so, you know, I see promise in all of these areas, whether it's liquid fuels or densified fuels or biomass thermal cogeneration or export pellets. Um, they all have unique opportunities and they all have unique challenges and all and and every one of them there is some distinct public role um biomass thermal is one of those instances where there you know it's a small market uh it has been growing almost of its own accord uh without any kind of real substantive public investment you know i we've at the department of forestry and some of our partners at the oregon department of energy have contributed project development funding to the tune of like $20,000 or $30,000 as has the Forest Service to pay for feasibility design and engineering. Uh, But in general, you know, aside from those soft costs, these installations are, customers are choosing them because of commercially proven technology, because of their renewable, because they're local, because the price stability and the energy savings. So that's an instance where I think... uh, Additional public funds can help that market grow because it has proven that it, it is sustainable and it's, it has strong market fundamentals. Uh, whereas I think that some of the other, you know, f- you know, frankly, some of the other uh, markets, particularly around liquid fuels, they haven't proven that they're going to be sustainable. Uh, but they're such a big market. There's there's a real allure to them. Uh, you know, I, I, 
I do think that sometimes we get into the moonshot syndrome that you know, if we just get this, everything's going to come together. And unfortunately, it never comes together. These smaller projects that you refer to, or, or more specifically, the biomass thermal that you refer to, um, I'm really happy to hear that it's that it's growing the way that it is in Oregon, but I can tell you that it's not the case in New Mexico, and I'm not sure about other southwestern states, but um, maybe the pattern is similar to what we see in New Mexico. So uh, I'm, I'm just, I, I guess I have a hard time wrapping my mind around you know, there there are quite a few projects that have been implemented in New Mexico um, with mixed results. And I'm just wondering, you know, what is it? Is it just the price of natural gas that is causing these to kind of falter? Or, you know, what is it about Oregon that is making you guys more successful? Or is are there certain cultural things that are happening in New Mexico? I mean, do, do you have any insight on that? Yeah, I, you know, it's... It's definitely a mix of factors, um, and I, you know, as I've watched the evolution of the biomass thermal industry in Oregon, and we've been at it for, you know, six or seven years, and we had some early pioneering communities that went out on a limb and said, we're going to be the first one to install a biomass thermal facility to heat our public school, right? And they took their lumps and bruises, and... The, you know, you have a deficit of architects and engineers who understand this. You don't have financing tools that make it happen. It's unknown to the permit agencies. Um, so we had a number of those early installations that we all trumpeted as the pioneers. And, and then we had this class of project developers who came through that developed a number of really viable projects and kind of got the collective notion over the hump, as, as it were. It's like, it's no longer new and novel. It's no longer risky um, because there's 20 of them and they all work. They're all operational and they're saving people energy dollars. Uh, so, you know, what are the keys to, that made that happen? You know, clearly you have project champions, you know, super, you know, uh, facility managers, superintendents, CEOs of hospitals, county commissioners, uh, folks who are willing to stand up and say, you know, I don't care if your interest as an engineer is to put in a natural gas plant or put in a, a heating oil boiler because that's what you've always done. I want you to put in a biomass boiler, and I want you to pencil out the numbers and make sure that it makes sense to us. There's people who are willing to stand up and do that and to – kind of buck the status quo because they believe in it and they believe in it because it makes good sense. So there is a, there is a, certainly a cultural aspect to it. Um, but I also think that as the, as the momentum has grown, the allure of biomass thermal, that it, it has new adherence in people who aren't kind of old guard timber communities uh, or right now working with a community in Ashland in Southern Oregon and a project at Southern Oregon University, and their interest in converting their campus to biomass heat for both heat and power is driven around sustainability and carbon. You know, they made a commitment to the university's climate plan that they would reduce their carbon emissions by 50%, and converting their natural gas heating plant to biomass will reduce their emissions by about 90%. So that 
you know, that's a that's what we see there is the the presence of a different driver coming onto the scene, a different motivation uh, to be a, a leader in the field, to walk the talk of climate change, and to be a place that can attract students and faculty who are interested in a living experiment around sustainability. So I think that you know we've we've gone from just basic energy savings and you know what is good to a broader perspective around climate change, uh, climate change, and also energy security. You know, we have a project with the Oregon National Guard who's converting one of its large training facilities from heating oil to biomass. And that they're doing that in part because of the local energy security um, benefit that it offers them, you know, for their emergency response duties. If the proverbial hits the fan, their fuel source is right in their backyard. They don't have to worry about the grid. They don't have to worry about it. It's just, it's there. And that's something that they understand. And the military, frankly, has taken energy independence very seriously. And, you know, that's part of the driver behind their investments. So it's really grown in an interesting way outside of these, you know, small rural communities that have a history of wood products uh, to others that are looking more globally at these other drivers that biomass as an energy source can provide for them. Well, some of this uh, is is very encouraging. Um, I wonder, as, as I hear you talk about this, it it's um, it's very interesting to hear you talk about the elements that make these programs successful and the things that can hold them back. And I'm wondering if it, it also feels to me like these types of elements are not really being effectively communicated amongst different practitioners around the different states in the country. Um, my my guess is, is this is one of the first long-form interviews you've done for broader publication about this type of stuff. Um, what are some of the communications te- challenges that we face? That's a great, it's a great question. Um, we do a lot of work around public relations on biomass. And one of the biggest challenges, well, several big challenges. Well, one is air quality and emissions and the idea that just combustion is bad, right? When you're burning stuff, it must be bad. Um, the other part, which is a, a big challenge, is is forest health. And I think there's it's oftentimes very easy for folks who are outside of the forest product sector to look uh, quite skeptically at the record of the forest products industry in terms of forest health. You know, as a forest, you know, someone in the forestry industry, I don't think that that's true, but I understand where it comes from. And you drive past a clear cut and you look at it and you go, oh, that, that must be bad. Uh, so that's, that's an ongoing challenge. Um, and then, you know, these questions of, of the carbon balance, you know, they're, those are complicated issues. So, you know, some of the ways that we have dealt with that, um, through I, I run what's called the Oregon Statewide Wood Energy Team, which is one of 16 statewide teams around the country. Um, and our one of our strategic efforts is to partner with the proponents of high-priority projects like Southern Oregon University or like the Mount Bachelor Ski Area in Central Oregon that's converting two of its lodges to biomass heat and help provide that set of experts to unpack these issues for the public. Like when you go out and have that conversation, you want to bring your community on board. Well, 
let's have somebody there from the air quality district, you know, from the permit writer who's going to help understand, you know, what, what are the permit standards that this facility has to meet? I was there to talk about forest health and the fire questions. We had a professor from Oregon State University College of Forestry to help make sense of these carbon questions. And we had a technical consultant there to explain the technology of combustion, you know, all those kinds of things that are just not obvious. And, you know, frankly, the university themselves are not prepared to answer because they're not technical experts either. So we've taken a team approach to doing this at a, at a local level um, and then, you know, to kind of get it up into the broader beat media, you know, we, we work with some of our team to produce communication materials, but, you know, frankly, that's a place where we've had some challenges trying to get that more complicated story out there to the media. And, and I've had experiences where talk to the media and, you know, you do your best and they spin it however they're going to spin it. So I, I think that's the, the, the earned media broader media sources, that's certainly an ongoing challenge. Well, I can tell you and assure you that there is no spin here. As you say, it, it will be published <laughs> and uh, people will consume the information that you're sharing for the most part in, in the way that you're sharing it. So that is a good thing about the internet and podcasting. But I also wonder, um, you know, I've sat in on some of these uh, Statewood Energy Team uh, national webinars, um, uh, several of them, in fact, and I always uh, walked away from those feeling a little bit unsatisfied uh, in that it seems like there are great initiatives going on around the country. But, you know, again, I come back to this, you know, what are the elements of success? I, I'm not sure that there is a good evaluation methodology that's kind of been put out there for someone who's on the ground to go into community and say, okay, you know, let me kind of evaluate what's happening and then tick the boxes, so to speak, and see if this is a community that's a good fit for this. And I know that there's some work that's being done on that. Um, you know, some of the experience sharing that goes on in some of the Statewood Energy Team meetings, it, it feels fairly superficial. And, and that's part of that is a function of time, just time limitations and all the different work that's going on. But um, is there anyone who's taking a deeper dive into this and seeing you know, how do we make these projects successful and how do we communicate that to our, just to our colleagues, not necessarily the broader public, but people who are actually working on these projects on the ground? You know, it's, it's a good question. You know, I, unfortunately, I don't think that there's a real good answer to it. Um, the, you know, I, I actually think what, what happens is that all of us in this space are so busy trying to get the projects up and going, address the challenges, get it right, that we rarely take the time to stop and tell the story and to uh, distill the lessons that we've learned along the way into something which is meaningful and useful to other folks who are facing the same challenges. Um, so given that, that backdrop, but I think that's the context that just about everyone across the country faces, um, you know, I think some of the best opportunities are really are regional gatherings amongst the practitioners to share lessons and to learn from each other where we can ask those questions because sometimes someone puts out a guide and you think, oh, this you know, doesn't really fit my community or my basic conditions are different. You know, Obviously, what's different, what's going to work in New Mexico is not the same thing as what's going to work in Oregon and vice versa. Um, so I, I think it's, it's, it's a challenging piece because... Uh, because of that diversity, you know, 
New England thinks are going great guns in biomass energy because there's high heating oil prices and there's a lot of demand and customer awareness and different business models. And the lake states, they have different kinds of challenges. In your part of the world, they have different challenges. And I, I think it's just very – that complexity makes it kind of a gap that's hard to get across with a publication or, or a tool that is useful to everyone. Uh, one of the things that I do think is a, a promising tool that the University of Minnesota developed along with the Forest Service is, is a, a biomass calculator um, that is based on the iPad that actually references you know, something on the order of 200 actual facilities that were built. So you know, I have this little app on my iPad and I go around to facilities and walk them through a very quick and dirty analysis and within an hour's time we'll know if converting their facility from their existing fossil fuel to a biomass fuel, whether that makes sense. And that's an instance where somebody very thoughtful about the technology and what the practitioners need and put it on a, you know, an easy to use mobile platform uh, and is now available to everyone. And and I presented that in South Korea a couple of months ago and there were practitioners there who were saying, oh, this would be useful. Can we have this thing translated into Korean? So I think that those kinds of, of mobile tools to put them in the hands of practitioners uh, might be one avenue that can, that could have a lot of uh, promise in the future. Well, I certainly agree. And, um, you know, maybe offline or just via email, you could send me some information on that mobile tool, and I'd be happy to share that with listeners. Now, when you say it's available to everyone, I mean, you really mean everyone. Anybody can just download this uh, app and, and use it. Yeah, it's free. It's a free app. Uh, you know, it hasn't been uh, – it's not multi-platform yet so it's just right now on the iPad and of course not everybody has an iPad so that there's a technological barrier there um, but one of the things that uh, we're doing through my participation on the Biomass Thermal Energy Council of which I'm a member of the board of directors is that we've taken through BTEC the care and feeding of that app and uh, agreed to make it multi-platform and to make it more accessible and to continue to update that database because I think what we're seeing is that there is an interest across the country in biomass heat and these small-scale technologies and the technology is simple enough that a practitioner with some knowledge could take this tool and the database that it draws from and walk into a conversation with a facility manager relatively informed and capable of having a conversation about whether a conversion would be a sensible idea or not. And I think that that's kind of, uh, that's liberating in a sense that we can, we could actually train up other people to use this thing uh, and spread the project development expertise and get people interested in the conversation. Cause you know, going back to your, your earlier comment about, you know, what's the tools that are going to help people. Part of it is that people just, you know, they're not interested. They don't know that, that this is a viable that there's a viable opportunity here. And that uh, sometimes I think that, that you have to set the hook first to get people to go, oh, well, maybe I should be thinking about biomass heat in addition to wind and solar and geothermal and energy efficiency. Well, obviously, I believe that we are setting the hook here in, in this interview. And um, I also believe that uh, 
these types of uh, formats that are released online are also a great way to increase that uh, communication and, and improve on that gap. Um, now, what is the timeline for the uh, release or the development of this application for other platforms? That's a good question. Um, I'll have to get back to you on the answer to that. I do know that we have secured the funds from the Biomass Thermal Energy Council to do that, and I think that work is going to happen within the next year. Um, but I'm afraid I don't know that actual answer. I could get back to you on that. Sure. Keep a surprise of that, and I will share that information with the listeners as it becomes available. And also, I'll be um, you know emailing you and asking you for any links that I can also put in the show notes for this episode so that people who are interested can access that. Now, would you feel like this application is a good tool maybe for um, independent consultants who are more in the private sector and who want to go around either public or private facilities and engage in this conversation and maybe create uh, a viable small business or an alternative income for themselves? Oh, I would definitely think so. Um, you know, that, so in addition to the financial calculator that's built into this tool, it tells a whole story of, you know, all the things that we've touched on today, the forest health question, the energy balance, carbon, the technology, the fuel types, uh, and the, the videos in the, and the photography. Uh, I have to give a shout out to the photographer, Dan Bin out of Colorado, who did a fabulous job uh, in getting images that really tell the story and videos that are all short and pithy. So even if, you, if someone has a, a background which isn't in biomass energy, it's almost as if there's enough there that you can kind of come up to speed very quickly. Uh, so it's, it's a great tool. I was quite impressed with it. Marcus Kaufman, is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners or any additional information that uh, I didn't ask you about or just anything related to this topic uh, that you'd like to conclude on? Yeah, one of the things that I want to help people understand is that, um, that biomass energy is happening at these multiple scales, and one market that we didn't talk about that I is the co-firing of biomass in coal-fired facilities, right? So that's taking biomass in a pellet form and using it to reduce the carbon impact of creating electricity. And, you know, this is common in Europe, uh, but for our part of the world in the West Coast, on, in Oregon, and you know, we're looking at the Asian market. And and I, it's, it's in some ways ironic that we would potentially manufacture pellets and ship them to Southeast South Korea to burn there, whereas we're not making that same commitment here at home. Uh, but well, I think what it signals is that, you know, there is there's an interest and a strong appetite for looking at biomass as this carbon neutral source of energy. And that that scale can be anywhere from the, you know, the home scale to the commercial scale to the industrial scale. And I think that's one of the things that's exciting about it, is that, that it, it does work at multiple scales. And that's part of our challenge is to figure out which of those scales are appropriate in which place. So thank you for the time. I really appreciate uh, being on your show. Well, one, one last thing I actually wanted to ask you that just occurred to me. Uh, any thoughts on uh, wood gasification technologies? Well, there's a big experiment happening in California around gasification uh, through California law that is essentially a feed-in tariff 
that makes the connection between lands that need to be restored for a fire and forest health perspective and deployment of biomass technology at three megawatts or less, which is fairly small scale. So they've, they're creating a market for that small scale gasification technology, um, which hopefully will prove out some of this small scale technology and make it commercially available to other people across the country. Um, I do think that they're still, they're still encountering some technological challenges with that gasification. Uh, so that's a place to uh, watch in the future. Well, Marcus Kaufman, thank you so much for the great work that you're doing. Thank you for sharing all this information with us uh, today on the Agro Innovations Podcast. Happy to do it. Thanks for the invite. That concludes my interview with Marcus Kaufman, who is with the Oregon Department of Forestry. And I asked Marcus to send me uh, some email links to the iPad application that he referenced in this interview. Unfortunately, he has not done so yet, but I'm sure he will. And as soon as he does, I will post some links either to the show notes for this particular episode or uh, through Twitter or Facebook or uh, the Agro Innovations blog, or most likely some combination thereof. So keep an eye on that. And in subsequent episodes, I will let you know what the status of that is. Um, I would imagine that maybe some folks out there may be interested in using that iPad app. And so if you do uh, track that down, or if you, once I do put the links up and you start using it, I'd like to hear about your experiences with it. And if anybody is to go so far as to actually, uh, you know, use it as a consulting tool or use it in a facility where they work, I definitely want to hear some reports back on on that. And I will uh, share those with the listeners. Thank you so much for joining me this year. uh, This has been the first year back for this podcast uh, since uh, an extended, I think it was a two and a half year hiatus uh, for some work reasons. And uh, it's been a good ride so far this year, brought in some donations. Hopefully that will uh, uptick in the coming year and hopefully we'll start to uh, recover some of the listener base that we lost during our hiatus. I know that that has been an ongoing process over the course of this year. We're probably still not up to quite where we were Uh, before I took that break, but I think we're probably getting close. I hope so. And uh, here's hoping that you and your family have a great Christmas and a good holiday season and and wishing you all the best in this coming year of 2015. I'm sure it's going to be a turbulent and interesting year like many of the recent years that we've had. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.